Hi, welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com. This episode is brought to you by two companies that I absolutely love and whose products I use all the time. The first is Kettle and Fire Bone Broth, which is the only USDA certified grass-fed bone broth made with organic ingredients. And their broth is made with bones from grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic, and hormone-free cows, and it's also delicious. The best part is it's non-perishable, so it's available in many stores, but it can also be shipped anywhere in the U.S. without refrigeration, which makes shipping less expensive and more environmentally friendly. The second company is Thrive Market, which is a hybrid of Whole Foods, Amazon, and Costco. And what I mean by that is it has a membership fee like Costco to let you into the low prices. Then it has, it's online like Amazon, and it carries natural products like Whole Foods. And if you live in a real food desert like I do, where it's hard to find many specialty items, Thrive Market may be your answer. So check both of those out in the show notes for today's episode. And without further ado, on to today's episode. Welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and I could not be more excited about today's guest because I have been a fan of her for a really long time. In fact, her book is one of the reasons that I really got into the health side of things in the first place, and it started a lot of my research. Dr. Kate Shanahan is a board-certified family physician. She trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell University before attending the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. For 10 years, she practiced medicine in Hawaii, where she studied ethnobotany and the culinary habits of her healthiest patients. She currently runs a metabolic health clinic in Denver, Colorado, and serves as the director of the Los Angeles Lakers Pro Nutrition Program. And as I mentioned, she's the author of the book, Deep Nutrition, which is one of my favorite books of all time. Dr. Kate, thanks for being here. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. And thank you so much for the the kind uh, backstory there. I didn't realize that, but that's very um, flattering to hear. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I have been a fan of your work for a really long time. And it's an honor to get to talk to you today and to share you with the listeners. And I think this is going to be an amazing episode. So I want to jump right in. So from what I understand, your own um, health condition, which was a knee problem, prompted you to look past the science and into a more natural and nutritional healing side of things. And I think your perspective is super valuable because you came from the medical model and then you delve into the natural and the nutritional model. And I feel like you have the best perspective with kind of a fusion of those. So can you start with that story of how your own experiences impacted um, how you viewed nutrition and how it impacts health and also how it got you into this side of things? Well, yeah, for sure. So what happened with me was that after I completed my medical training and then I was practicing in medicine, Hawaii, I got sick myself and I had a problem with my knee. I couldn't walk. That was the the problem. And if I stood on it too long, I'd get fevers and, uh, you know, get really tired. And it was a bizarre problem. And I had all the usual specialists look at it from rheumatologists to surgeons. I even had surgery and nothing helped. So like I was a desperate and B because I was a former athlete, I had all this free time suddenly where normally I, on my, anytime I had a day off, I would have been like biking or something for two, three hours. Suddenly I I didn't have that time. I, I mean, I did, I had all this time to, to think about, medicine and what I was doing with my career and what was happening with my health and why like there was no answer. So I started looking in the direction of nutrition because my husband who likes cooking kind of said to me, well, you know, you do eat a lot of sugar and, um, 
you know, maybe that's good for insects, but you're not an insect and uh, you eat yet you eat like one. And so that was kind of like the first time I really took him seriously. He'd been making those kind of comments for years because I had um, a terrible sweet tooth. Like if I went for a 10 mile run, I would reward myself with a pound of M&Ms. So I started just kind of looking into nutritional um, other ways of thinking about health actually in medicine. And that led me to nutrition because Andrew Weil had written a book called Spontaneous Healing. And um, in that book, he mentioned something called omega-3 fatty acids, which were fats that were good for you. So this was way back in 2001. Now, like every fourth grader uh, knows what omega-3 fatty acids are and everyone's taking their fish oil. But back then it was a completely new thing. And I had, um, I was actually like somewhat outraged because I had gone to medical school and paid all this money for my medical education. And yet I didn't learn that there, about these essential fatty acids and how they affected our health in ways that had nothing to do with calories. And so that was kind of like the opening of getting into questioning, you know, how can I put my medical education that I had learned all this stuff about cell physiology and biochemistry, how can I put nutrition into that context? Because I realized that what Andrew Weil's book did was open the door to this whole other idea of how food affects our body, which is became when I understood what omega-3 fatty acids do and the difference between omega-3 and omega-6, it was amazing because what, what I learned was that omega-3 fatty acids can actually turn off cancer growth and omega-6 fatty acids actually turn on cancer growth. And what that mean, what that meant was that food was connecting, was, was communicating information to our bodies. It was instructing our cells. And so that was really the missing piece in my medical education. So that suddenly I had a framework to include all the bio, important biochemistry I'd learned but put it in the framework of food rather than just like abstract, you know, chemical reactions in our bodies that, well, they're going on and everything, but really the only way to change them is with drugs. We, as, as medical students, learn a lot about that and how drugs affect our cell physiology and direct our uh, changes within our bodies. But we did not learn how nutrition, how food can do this. And so that's when I decided I was going to learn everything I possibly could about what we knew about fats and sugar. And, and then from there, it just unfolded into, um, into what ultimately became our book, deep nutrition. But the, the book is kind of like, uh, it, it's different than any other diet book. And I, I think you, I don't know. I obviously, if you agree with that, it's, it's like, you know, a lot of diet books are like, well, don't eat grains or, um, you know, eat more fat or like you can summarize the concept fairly quickly. It's very amenable to describing in a sound bite. but for years I've kind of struggled with a way to encapsulate all the information in deep nutrition and, um, I don't know. Did you feel like it was a little bit more like big picture than, than, um, am I, am I like, uh, patting myself on the back when I shouldn't be here? <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. In fact, I've said that before when I first read it years ago. Um, I, when did tell my husband about it and then also my parents because of like certain history in our family, I figured it would be really helpful for my dad. And when I did that, I went to them and I was like trying to think of how to summarize it in my head. And I felt like I needed to be like, okay, 
here you go. Take a deep <laughs> breath, sit down. I'll try to explain this all to you. Um, and I have bought copies over the years for a lot of different relatives for that reason. But I agree, you really do address the big picture. And I felt like you tie it in really comprehensively, much more so than a lot of diet books, like you said, that just focus on one aspect. And many of those obviously are very important aspects, but I felt like you made it very cohesive and made it make sense in all together. And I know um, your book is raved about for that reason, especially with explaining what you call the four pillars um, of these nutritional habits. And so can we talk about that a little bit, dive into the four pillars and what they are? Yeah, uh, we definitely, I want to do that. But, um, you know, before I do that, I want to kind of explain um, what uh, what's going on with our book, right? Because, you know, you've read the book and yet it's not available. So what we're, what we're doing is <laughs> we've re-released it. So um, what happened was that um, we self-published back in 2008 and, um, and it did very, you know, well, surprisingly, because we had no platform or anything, but it was, you know, thanks to people like you who are promoting it and talking about it. And then over uh, last year, right around last year at this time, we were contacted by a publisher who was interested in re-releasing it. And I had to kind of start thinking about, well, what would, what would this book do that's different than the original version? And what I came up with was that um, I wanted to just encapsulate a little more clearly what our book is all about. So in putting the new edition together, I realized that deep nutrition really tells a story and it's perhaps it's the most important story that the next generation will hear because it's the story that we are on the verge of losing our humanity. And it tells the story of how we got here. The story started back at the end of right around the industrial revolution in the late 1800s, where our food supply had, had become a lot more mechanized and there was an introduction of, uh, we were getting away from traditions, basically. People were doing a lot more shortcuts. We were using a lot more like white flour and we were starting to use um, industrial uh, fats, like shortenings. And as this was happening, doctors, physicians around the world were on the verge of realizing that this shift which had impacted certain cultures much more dramatically, it, like certain pockets had been really dramatically impacted by this, like certain um, areas of, uh, in this country, folks on Indian reservations and Eskimos, and what we now call Native American reservations, doctors were realizing that where these folks who were, uh, you know, still independent, they were not on the reservation or they were not really reliant on the reservation food. They were not getting the diseases that the doctors had seen a lot more in civil, you know, back in, back in civilization, like back in the rest of the United States, they were basically not getting cancer and they were not getting tuberculosis the way everyone else was. And this was started a huge conversation among doctors to try and understand what was going on here. And um, ultimately, one of the forerunners of this kind of way of thinking emerged as his name was Weston Price, and he was a dentist. And I'm sure you've mentioned his work before. Um, he's a fantastic book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And this, the, what he showed was that when people simply followed their traditions, they were resistant to all of these 
diseases of what they were calling at the time diseases of civilization, which were a lot of the infectious diseases and cancers. And uh, what Weston Price was interested in was uh, facial asymmetries that necessitated braces and painful surgeries and all kinds of you know, horrible jaw surgery that he was really distressed about having to do on so many children. So just at, this was happening at the end like of the 1930s and Price's book came out right at that point in time. We were on the verge, medicine, when I say we, I mean medicine at this point, we're on the verge of like sh taking this big leap into understanding the importance of vitamins and nutrition and grass-based, you know, um, animal feeding for our, our cows when it was all literally blown away by World War II and the changes that occurred there around the mechanization of food production. So I've said kind of like the forerunner in this way of thinking uh, in, in this story here of the, the good way of thinking that we were on the verge of discovering was Weston Price. Well, his counterpart, his, his bad guy, if you will, uh, the bad guy in nutrition is a man named Ansel Keys. And um, you, you might have heard this name before because he's been uh, promoted by Harvard as the father of like as this genius, this father of the diet heart hypothesis, the idea that fat is bad for heart health. But but he came along when he came along, he he actually tricked us physicians into discarding or suggesting that people discard what remained of our respect for culinary traditions and culinary practices at the time, because he said we should now get rid of, you know, butter and eggs and things like this because they were causing heart disease. And he used statistics to confuse doctors rather than using physiology, right? So doctors don't typically learn, certainly at that point in time, statistical um, analysis was not something that doctors learned. It was not part of the medical conversation, but uh, this was kind of like something he something he brought in and emphasized. And so when when doctors heard, you know, oh, well, these are these statistics now, it was like, well, we couldn't really argue with it because it's we don't know. We didn't do the survey. We don't know how to analyze these things. And what Ansel Keys was doing was he was using statistics to promote the kinds of processed foods that made a name that he used to make a name for himself in the first place. So it gets back to World War II because Ansel Keys invented the K ration, which was what the military were fed with during World War II. And K ration, K stands for Keys. So it was processed food that brought Ansel Keys into ascendancy. And um, what he did with that position was to use statistics and some chemical confusion, but primarily statistical manipulation, to destroy what was left of our respect for traditional culinary practices in the United States. And it was all in the name of promoting the kind of processed foods he put in his K-rations. Um, and he ultimately was su successful in getting Americans to follow a cheap food diet. And you know, I'm I'm kind of acting a little bit as a medical investigator here, and I'm pointing the finger at Keys, even though I don't really have a lot of strong evidence that he was connected to. Um, I personally haven't found a lot of strong evidence that he was connected to the processed food industry, but other people have written about it. Um, and other people like Nina Teicholz, who wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise, and um, uh, Tim Naughton, who wrote a book called The Big Fat, uh, uh, wait, oh, Fathead, not a book. It was a movie called Fathead. So other people have talked about um, how 
Ansel Keys really um, was kind of in thick with the processed food industry. Um, and and so the his goal was basically to get people on a cheap food diet. And, and what that cheap food diet is, is a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of processed vegetable oils. And um, this was only made, this shift in our mentality, though, would never have flown if medical doctors insisted that we stop talking about statistics and continue talking about what doctors learn in the first place, which is physiology and chemistry. Like I went to school for seven years learning about physiology and chemistry. And when I got out of medical school, suddenly everything was about statistics and, you know, the um, surveys that they do to try to figure out, you know, who benefits from what kind of a drug for what kind of a disease. And we don't think about the physiology of how these drugs affect our body anymore because we're always, we're busy talking about statistics. And, and in doing this, doctors have just, in allowing this to happen, doctors have totally relinquished control of, of medical practice to statisticians and statisticians are pretty much bought and sold by whoever it is that is paying their bill at the time. And, um, you know, that's kind of a sweeping statement to make as well, but there was a study that came out in, um, as it was a Cochrane review that was published on December 12th, 2012, an easy date to remember, um, about this and about how, uh, whenever there is a funder for a study, in this case, it was pharmaceutical studies there, the, the, the findings are, you know, for hundreds of percentages points above chance of, of, of finding something favorable for the funder of the study. And so this is how we've gotten into this situation where, Doctors are not very helpful anymore in terms of helping people eat a healthy diet. So deep nutrition tells the whole story of how we got to this point where doctors don't really understand what's causing disease and who the enemy is, which is big food. And we talk about the cost of all this to our genes. What is happening to our genes because we've all been on this cheap food diet for generations now. And it shows what we should be doing to take control back. And so that's where we get to the four pillars. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you took us through the whole story. And I know that that has been part of my own frustration um, in my own health journey with trying to find doctors who could actually figure out what was wrong with me, which turned out to be Hashimoto's. But um, I went through so many doctors who were like, well, there's no, nutrition has no bearing on your thyroid or no bearing on health. And that's definitely not the reason. And just, it's very frustrating when you are looking in the medical community. And I feel like a lot of them don't have that whole picture and they don't understand the whole story. And yet they very strongly stand behind these beliefs that they have that, like you just explained, trace back to what we now see could be very flawed data to begin with. Um, and I feel like especially where we see this is with saturated fat, because it's almost become so ingrained that you can say artery clogging and most people will say saturated fat. And um, like you'll hear like heart healthy monounsaturated fats and they have all these like very strong programmed responses about which fats are healthy and which aren't. And thankfully I have seen some um, research coming out recently about the sugar industry and how that all played out like you were talking about in the story. But let's go back to saturated fat for a minute um, because 
I think probably most of my listeners are pretty well educated on this, but I also think you right. have some really good, interesting additional perspective on this. So what is the real story with saturated fat? So the real story with saturated fat is that uh, in or- we only started talking about it because of people like Ansel Keys, who gave us this idea, this simplistic image created in our minds of solid fat, because animal fats, you know, tend to be more solid than vegetable oils. Um, oils are liquid. And so solid fat can clog up a pipe under the kitchen sink. And so he created this thought and this image of just eating fat and the fat just gets stuck in your arteries and causes arteriosclerosis and heart attacks and strokes. But that's absurd because doctors know that fat doesn't simply just diffuse into your bloodstream and where it can congeal on the sides of your arteries. The nature has divide nature knows that oil and water, that fat and water don't mix well. And so it's created these particles called lipoproteins, which carry fat. So that model is absurd on its face that, um, just eating solid fat will just somehow congeal in your arteries. It's, it's no more reasonable to say that, you know, we should just all have a liquid diet because liquids can flow in our bloodstream, right? Just solids are the problem, right? I mean, it's that (laughs) absurd. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, so, but Ansel Keys was very clever. He knew that doctors didn't understand a lot of chemical terms and we had no idea what hydrogenated vegetable oils were. So now I think, uh, you know, I'm sure your audience knows that they are, oils that come from corn and soy that have been extracted in an industrial process. And then they've been further processed to kind of harden them into um, a more solid state. And this is what shortenings and margarines were made out of. So Ansel Keys did all these studies on margarines and the effect of margarine on cholesterol in, in animals and showed that the margarines did indeed elevate cholesterol and cause arteriosclerosis in the animal models. And so when he was talking about his studies, though, he said saturated fat, even though he was using margarine, which is really, you know, a hydrogenated oil, which is going to become a blend of saturated fat and trans fat, which is so toxic that it's been made illegal in um, like Manhattan and uh, San Francisco. But um, when he was talking about his studies to, to the media, he, and he was kind of, he did go on kind of a media blitz, right? He was on TV. He made the cover of Time Magazine. So he would use words like butter and eggs when, and, and then use saturated fat in the same sentence, implying that what he was studying in his animal models that he was, you know, referring to that had been published was butter and eggs, but he never used those things. He used hydrogenated vegetable oils, which are the worst uh, possible kind of man-made industrial food you could have made. So he was, I mean, you have to, I have to see this as a purposeful deception. He was telling people butter and eggs were um, saturated fat. um, And then in his studies, he was using saturated fat from margarine, which is hydrogenated vegetable oil. And of course, he had this connection to processed food because that's what he made his bones on. And by the K rations were, you know, nothing but processed food. And so he was essentially a mouthpiece for the processed food industry, trying to get people to eat more vegetable oil um, instead of the natural kind of animal fats that people have uh, been eating forever. Right. Uh, Suddenly now these things are bad for us. 
And the consequences of that shift away from saturated, away from natural fat and towards these vegetable oils are still underexamined. And that's another reason why um, I wanted to add to the book that we wrote, Deep Nutrition, and expand. We have a huge chapter and a lot of focus on what's happening with these vegetable oils. What do they do to our arterial health, to our genetic health, and to our brains, um, to our mental health? So uh, nobody's talking about this. Nobody is talking about this. But soy oil consumption has gone up about 2,000-fold, 2,000 times over the past uh, century, since 1909. Nobody's talking about this. Our uh, soy oil is not, you know, bad for us because soy is bad for us, although you can eat too much soy and it's not good for you. Uh, And it can cause thyroid problems. But soy oil is bad because it is a polyunsaturated vegetable oil that is processed, all the vitamins are stripped away. And we end up eating so much of these polyunsaturated fatty acids now that our bodies are literally composed of different chemicals than they were a hundred years ago. Um, I was just speaking to a researcher in um, at UC Davis, and um, he was telling me that, or he was telling me about a study that he did of where they biopsied the fat, women fat fat in women (laughs) in our (laughs) subcutaneous fat. Um, I don't know why they didn't do men, but (laughs) they did women. And so back in 1945, the composition of female fat was about 6% of this kind of a polyunsaturated fatty acid called linoleic acid, which is the most common fatty acid, polyunsaturated fatty acid in soy oil. 6%, 6%, maybe 7% of, of a woman's fat was composed of that. Now, you biopsy a woman's adipose tissue, and it's somewhere between 20 and 25% of linoleic acid, okay? So linoleic acid is a polyunsaturated fatty acid, and it is uh, very susceptible to oxidation and these things called free radical cascades, which we write about, which promote inflammation and which essentially accelerate aging. They weaken our connective tissues so that we are more prone to developing cellulite because of this. And then they don't burn as well for energy. So it makes it harder for us to lose weight. Plus, our brains now are made out of this kind of uh, polyunsaturated fatty acid that is prone to oxidation. And because we have not been eating normal food, we don't have enough antioxidants to control all the oxidation. And so what we have is abnormalities of our fat tissue where we get cellulite a lot more easily than we should. I've seen babies with cellulite. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you, you're supposed to kind of be able to pinch a baby's skin and it just, you know, you have like an adorable little fold of fat in your fingertips. But what happens now is you can kind of moosh the baby belly fat together and you see dimpling in there. And that never happened before. When I first came out of, uh, well, I remember when I was, you know, when I was a kid, which is going back into the, um, the 1800s practically, um, you know, my little brothers and sisters, their skin didn't do that. They didn't get that dimpling. And you look at, you know, celebrities and uh, the, the nasty pictures that the paparazzi take. And even though their, their body fat 
percentage is somewhere, you know, it's low. It's like 10 to 12%. You still see cellulite. And it's because cellulite fat lacks adequate collagen support because it's been eaten away literally by the inflammation caused by the fact that our fat is now composed of this pro-inflammatory fatty acid. We are different chemically than we were 50 years ago. And no one is talking about this. So that's, that's why I needed to, you know, talk about it <laughs> and by, by updating our book. Absolutely. In fact, I know quite a few women who are so horrified by their cellulite that they've gone to doctors and plastic surgeons trying to fix it. And they've all been told across the board, it's just genetic. There's nothing you can do to control it except for surgery or except for whatever the thing is that they're peddling. And so that's why it's yeah. really striking to me that you make that connection because you're like you said, nobody's talking about this. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, it's true that once you have the uh, supporting structures in your um, cellulite, uh, I'm sorry, in your fat, once those supporting structures are worn away by inflammation, it, it will take a very long time for them to come back. This is, this is like, you know, bone uh, replacement occurs on a seven year cycle, right? It's, it's a slow process. And so while, you know, it's not that there's nothing you can do about it, you, you get your body fat percentage down low enough and yeah, you won't have the dimpling, but it's not really the way it's, you know, I mean, we, uh, in the past, you wouldn't see cellulite till you got up to be somewhere around, you know, like 30, 40% body fat. Now you see it in people with 10% body fat, which is bordering on an unhealthy low amount of body fat for reproduction. You need about 10% body fat for your, you know, um, pituitary ovarian, um, adrenal gland access to all function normally for optimal fertility. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and to also tie in, another thing that's often lumped into this equation is the cholesterol thing. And I have so many readers who will leave comments along the lines of, I agree with you and saturated fats obviously are healthy. I just can't eat them because I have high cholesterol. So talk about how cholesterol fits into this. We have a whole chapter on this because it is it is so important to understand. So as I mentioned, um, saturated fat does not travel in your bloodstream freely, right? Like, like grease traveling and it, it travels in these structures called lipoproteins. And we can eat more saturated fat and our body will just make more lipoproteins. And the lipoproteins job is to ensure that whatever fat we're, we're eating. And, and in, in fact, whatever we're eating, cause it's not all just like fat. It's also fat soluble vitamins and fat soluble antioxidants and things that we wouldn't necessarily consider fat. So like vitamin A, for example, is in our lipoproteins. Vitamin E is carried in our lipoproteins. Um, so the, the job of these lipoproteins is to form, they are originally formed in our intestine by our intestine, right at the point where fats enter our body, they are packaged immediately into a type of lipoprotein that's that's the biggest type of all called chylomicron. It's the biggest type of all because it's full of fat and its job is to flow around in the bloodstream and deliver these nutrients to the tissues that need it. So, you know, all of our body tissues are, our cell membranes of all of our body tissues are made of fat and cholesterol. And so all of our body tissues need a fresh supply. And so that's what these things do. And as they deliver a little bit of fat here and there, they shrink down and get a little smaller. And um, at some point they get um, absorbed by the liver that 
kind of like repackages them with some goodies that the liver makes because the liver makes also some uh, fat soluble vitamins and things. Uh, it processes vitamin D from one form into another form and then can package that into lipoprotein and it also can just keep the lipoproteins refreshed, right? It's sort of like getting your laundry done. You need to get the lint off and stuff. Well, you need the same thing <laughs> with your lipoproteins. They get refreshed in the liver and then they get spit out by the liver a little, you know, significantly smaller than the original size of the chylomicron, but still pretty darn big. And they're called VLDL lipoproteins. And then they circulate around until they're a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, then they become LDL. Now, LDL, you've probably heard is the so-called bad cholesterol. Um, but it's, not correctly named. It is not bad. It doesn't do anything wrong. It was not designed by nature to kill us. Um, what the, the, what we're finding though, is that there's this just big mix up between, um, we're still thinking like Ansel Keys. We're still thinking that inherently somehow this fat is going to clog in our artery. And it's because fat is solid and because, you know, nature just doesn't know how to solve this and this unsolvable problem of getting fat to circulate properly in the artery. So, so maybe it's not saturated fat that literally, uh, you know, clogs and congeals in our arteries, but it's one of these lipoproteins. And right now they've targeted the LDL. And I go into the, you know, it doesn't really matter why, but although I do for the sake of this um, understanding it, but I do go into why for those people who are interested in um, deep nutrition in chapter seven. But um, so what the, they're not understanding, the whole re problem that they um, have is that it's not that lipoproteins are bad. It's that like anything else, they can become dysfunctional, right? Like, uh, you know, every type of cell can become dysfunctional and lead to a disease. And it's caused by the crummy diet that we're all on, all this cheap processed food. So what happens when we're on all this cheap processed food is that our lipoproteins don't function properly. And um, just because of the way uh, we can measure certain lipoproteins, LDL happens to be one of the lipoproteins that we've had our eye on for a long time because we found it first, basically. And so lipopro LDL lipoprotein, like all the other lipoprotein, becomes dysfunctional. And sometimes the numbers climb a little bit when it becomes dysfunctional. But the number is not the problem. The, the fact that it is dysfunctional is the problem, as you might imagine. What do, You might be wondering, what do I mean by dysfunctional? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because you, you're right that they are definitely the bad guys. And it frustrates me because having read your book and seen some of the same research, um, they really aren't the problem at all. But yet that's what so much of the conventional model is is based on. In fact, even if you go to get life insurance, which my husband and I have been working on lately just because we have right. small children, um, they measure your cholesterol. And if any of those are high, it's considered a risk factor. Um, so yeah, go a little deeper into that. Like what is the actual problem? What What is that dysfunction and what does that stem from? So the, the, the dysfunction is that the lipoproteins can no longer do their job and their job is to deliver that fat, right? So your job is to carry the blood, the uh, fatty um, nutrients through the bloodstream, through the circulation until they arrive at a tissue that wants them and then deliver some of the fat to that, that tissue and then move on. So when they're dysfunctional, they can't do that. And so they can be dysfunctional by not being recognized by cells so that they stay in circulation too long. And that's when a person's LDL will go up from a bad diet. And that's the whole reason that everybody thinks LDL cholesterol is bad. 
That is the whole reason right there in a nutshell, because when they are dysfunctional in the way that they cannot be absorbed by the cell, LDL is stays in the blood circulation. And so LDL numbers will go up because of that. And even though it's just a tiny little bit up, it's maybe like 10% higher than it would be otherwise. Um, that little blip has been blamed for all of heart disease and it's absolutely absurd. Um, but so, so they stay in your circulation when they are dysfunctional and it is only because of, um, the processed food diet because of the high carbohydrates and the, the vegetable oils that I mentioned our bodies are now, you know, composed of because, and I didn't mention this, our diets are composed of them and uh, around, like I, I did allude to it. I said that it went up by around 2000 times soy oil, but the average American is getting about probably 35 to 45% of their total daily calories from these kinds of unnatural fats. And, um, that never, that has never happened before and our bodies cannot handle them. And the consequence is that they, the reason they're, uh, that we can't handle them is because they're prone to oxidation and we can only have so much of them, um, until we start to lose control of oxidation reactions and it's oxidation reactions that cause the lipoproteins to become dysfunctional because the, the oxidation destroys the functionality of the lipoprotein particle. It's like, uh, like a laser, you know, just imagine like star Wars where they're having like the, they're attacking like the, the death star with all those lasers and stuff like that. And the laser laser beams are, are making stuff on the surface of the death star blow up. Well, that's kind of what happens to the lipoproteins because the, the oxidation reactions cause free radical cascades, which kind of sort of blow up the, the, <laughs> the proteins on the surface of these lipoproteins that are trying to direct their job is to make sure that that fat gets delivered. And when those proteins are destroyed, that functionality is destroyed, the fat can't get delivered. So they just stay in circulation and they stay and they stay and they stay. And eventually they, the lipoprotein just disintegrates over time. And now you have fat that cannot stay suspended. And now you're getting to that congealing on the lining of the artery situation. And that's how you get arteriosclerosis. That's how you get plaque building up. My sons will love your Star Wars analogy to help explain that. Do you love the taste and the benefits of bone broth, but don't love how time consuming it is to make? With the time you spend sourcing the best ingredients and then simmering it for hours on end on the stove, Kettle and Fire solves that problem with their bone broth. So they use only bones from 100% grass-fed pasture-raised cattle that are never given hormones and antibiotics. It's also unique because they focus on bones that are especially high in collagen, which is one of the healthiest things you can put in your body. Another great thing about them is they use really eco-friendly minimal packaging and their bone broth is non-perishable. So unlike many bone broths on the market, it ships without the need for refrigeration, which is also much more eco-friendly. It is available in many stores, so definitely check your local area. But if it's not, like it isn't for me, you can order it online and have it shipped to your door, which is what I do. So to check it out and to find out more about why their bone broth is so wonderful, go to kettleandfire.com forward slash wellnessmama. If you're like me and you live in an area where it's sometimes hard to find any kind of specialty ingredients, especially if you're talking about organic ingredients, gluten-free foods, or allergy-friendly foods, I highly recommend that you check out Thrive Market. So Thrive is like a combination of Costco, Amazon, and Whole Foods. And here's why I say that. So like Costco, they have a yearly membership fee, and this lets you access all of their special pricing and deals. 
like Amazon, they're online, and they also have very fast shipping, and it's usually free with most orders. And then, like Whole Foods, they carry high-quality foods and specialty ingredients, and especially focus on GMO-free and organic foods. So it's really been helpful to me, and I know that you're going to love it too. Um, you can also get a free jar of coconut oil with your first order. So check them out. Go to thrivemarket.com forward slash wellnessmama. So based on what you've said, then let's, what, how do statins fit into the equation? Because you hear a lot about them and they're one of the most commonly prescribed drugs right now, if I understand it. And there have even been suggestions of giving them to children and putting them in the water supply. But based on what you just said, it seems like not only is that going to not be effective, but it could be pretty dangerous. How do statins fit in? So statins do help some people and um, they help those people who are unwilling or unable to stop eating these pro-inflammatory vegetable oils or they're unwilling or unable to reduce their dietary carb intake because both of those things will damage your lipoproteins. And the third thing is they're unwilling or unable to quit smoking because smoking promotes oxidative stress and also damages lipoproteins. So statins are, are going to help those people a little bit. And the reason they help those people is because when you poison your liver with statins, your, your body is less able to manufacture cholesterol. So it becomes hungrier for those lipoproteins so that they're absorbed more quickly. So it gets them out of the circulation more quickly. And that's a good thing because um, the longer they stay in circulation, the, the greater chance they have of that laser you know, attack <laughs> damaging the proteins that, that are on the surface of the lipoprotein particles. So, so statins, because they like, I mean, they really do poison the livers and, and the rest of the, the body tissues that, uh, that, um, they enter, they block enzymes for the manufacture of a precursor to cholesterol so that they, um, impair even your brain's ability to make cholesterol. And ultimately that, you know, they're, they're going to cause some other problem. They're going to reduce your risk of heart disease and stroke. But my belief is that they will almost always uh, that reduction and they're just shifting around what disease you're going to die from. So, because they poison your body's ability to make not just cholesterol, but also some important things for, uh, immune system function and muscle function. So they weaken the heart muscle, they weaken, um, muscle tissue in general, they reduce the brain's ability to manufacture, um, cholesterol. So they, I, I believe we're going to find that they shrink brain tissue. Um, they actually use a statin to promote or to cause an animal model of dementia, so, you know, what does that tell you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely you should give people a pause before making that decision. Should I change my diet or should I just take statins? So before we get too deep into this, I want to circle back and talk about the four pillars that you have in your book, because I feel like we're touching on a lot of the points that are really relevant to them. So um, can you give us an overview of what those four pillars are and how they're so important? Yeah, so they're important because the four pillars are how uh, we can take control back, um, we take control of our health back. And what they are is um, they are elements of all traditional cuisines that are universal to every traditional cuisine that um, that I looked at, which is hundreds <laughs> around the world. The the four elements that are common to all traditional cu uh, cuisines are they're actually strategies more so than like ingredients. Um, so uh, do you want me to list them? 
Yeah, that would be awesome. Okay. So we have fresh food like salad or unprocessed, um, uncooked uh, animal products. So like sushi is an example of fresh food or raw milk. I'm a big fan of uh, raw uh, dairy products. And then we have uh, fermented and sprouted foods. And those are like uh, sauerkraut or yogurt or live cultured uh, lacto fermented foods. And sprouted being like you can soak your grains or you can soak your nuts and seeds for a little while before, you know, cooking them. Um, And it actually enhances their nutritional value. And that's pillar two. So, And the third pillar is meat on the bone. So you cook the whole meat part of the animal, like with all the fat and if it's appropriate, like with chicken, with the skin as well, and even the bones. And then you go beyond that and you make use of of the bones and all the joint uh, and connective tissue that holds the bones together. And you extract some really important compounds that are, that act like growth factors for your joints and all your collagen materials. And then the final pillar is organ meat and organ meats are really, um, they were the first thing to disappear from, (laughs) uh, the American table because I think partly because they were diverted for things like glue, carpet backing and pet food, but also because they're require they're not going to taste good unless they're absolutely fresh and part of what happened with the over the past 50 years is that you know we centralized everything so that our food is you know processed thousands of miles away from where we live and it just you can't always get those organ meats <laughs> circulated around fresh but they and they also take a lot of skill to prepare so most Americans have some experience with liver but you know when this country was founded actually um there's uh, George Washington and, um, you know, the, our founding fathers, they, they ate like heart and, um, they would have sausage made with kidneys stuffed inside it and, uh, you know, bone marrow and ears and nose and everything. And this is what all traditional cultures did. And all of these different body parts are loaded with a different profile of nutrients. So that's why they're important because, you know, muscle meat is important too, but it gives us a lot of protein. And, and when when you're talking about cow, it gives you also iron. When you're talking about chicken, it gives you also B vitamins and pork the same, but the organs also have their own unique nutrient profiles. And they're loaded with a lot of vitamins and other things that we don't always think about as vitamins like choline and lecithin and uh, different types of fatty acids and stuff, the stuff that we need, but that we're just not getting now because we're really mostly focusing on animal products equaling muscle meat. So those, those four strategies are how people all around the world for thousands of generations extracted the maximum amount of nutrition from their environment. And that is like the the definition of really a healthy diet, no matter where you live. So it worked in Alaska where people didn't have a lot of fresh vegetables, but they still had a lot of they, what they did instead was have a lot of raw animal, like raw seal. And, um, they would actually ferment like whale because a whale is so ginormous that you can't eat it all. So they buried some underground where it would ferment. They never cooked it. Cause where are they going to get, you know, it's not like they had, uh, a lot of firewood around Alaska natives, um, really Northern climates ate a lot of their animal products raw. And when you do that, you don't need so much, um, vegetable material because one of the best things about vegetables is that they give us a lot of antioxidants. But if you're not cooking, you don't, uh, you're not destroying the antioxidants in meat. <laughs> so those, so your animal products are going to be loaded with antioxidants as well. 
Yeah, I feel like you have the most balanced view of it I've ever seen. And that's because it's not like let's all jump on the Mediterranean bandwagon and eat the exact same foods that they eat in the Mediterranean that work for them. And it's not just all let's jump on whichever dietary thing is popular at the time, but looking at all of them across the board and finding the commonalities. And what I also love about your approach is I feel like you meld the traditional and all the wisdom that we know from thousands and thousands of years of just traditional cultures eating in an intuitive way with the science of today. So you talk about how food directs our cellular growth and how food can actually alter our DNA. And I love this. This is the research that I love reading and it keeps me up at night because we once thought that DNA was stagnant and that it doesn't really change. And once you've got it, that's you're stuck with it. But your research contradicts this and you have found some fascinating stuff that you talk about. So I would love to delve into um, to how does food impact our DNA and and that whole picture. Explain that to us. So, yeah. So, I mean, the idea is that um, our DNA is just, it's really old. It's, it's humongous. Um, there are billions and billions of bits of data encoded in, in our, the DNA that's in every single one of our cells. And it's a survivor. It's been around for as long as life on earth has been around, right? So, uh, you know, some folks think that life on earth began three and a half billion years ago. And so that means that our DNA can have extended back all that time. And every year it survives by getting smarter and learning new strategies and actually getting longer, right? So we have some pretty long DNA now compared to the original um, life forms on earth that weren't even bacteria. They were archaebacteria, which are very different and can live like thousands of years. They've actually found some discovered in solid rock. It's really amazing. What can, what life on earth can do, <laughs> but all this time, uh, DNA has, has survived by making decisions. And it's, you know, it's really impossible to talk about this without anthropomorphizing a little bit and <laughs> acting like DNA really has its own intelligence because it responds to what we eat. For example, if we eat less protein, well, our DNA responds by preparing the next generation to be physically smaller because our bones are like 90% protein. Um, if we eat more protein, then our DNA responds by, by, of course, if we're a child, by programming us to grow bigger, but also by preparing the the DNA that's in, you know, a woman's ovaries or a man's testes to prepare the next generation to be ready for all that protein to make use of it. A part, you know, particular, it's not just protein, it also has to come along with all the minerals that bones are made out of and all this other stuff. But but this is why some races are taller than others. It's just because for generation after generation, they've gotten relatively more or less protein and all the other bone building minerals. So that's just one example. Um, but you know, all the difference between all the species are, are based on examples like this. So it's, it's not random mutation and, and, um, selection, right? So that model was kind of proposed as one of the possible models in, in 1880s, but there were also people that were saying there's something else. There's something inherent to, to DNA that directs this, the decisions that, um, 
that DNA makes. So it's not all random. So it, this isn't actually, I'm not saying really, you know, anything brand new. We just have lots of new evidence now as to what is the mechanism by which our DNA has always made intelligent decisions that were non-random. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm kind of offended by the idea that, uh, that all life on earth is just a series of random mutations. There's, it's not random. There is intelligence encoded in our DNA. And, and we're just beginning to understand the incredibly complex mechanisms behind that. But what, what we're talking about, though, is how not just how gene expression changes so that like you can have the same DNA maybe as your father, but end up being taller because your bone, the expression of, of the um, the cells and your bones for making more bone material was just greater. So they grew faster, right? So you can have the same DNA, but it expresses differently. But over time, you do that over and over again, and you can actually get mutations. Uh, I mean, we call them mutations, but they're not random, um, not entirely random. And they are actually changes to the letter code. And they can be beneficial or they can be detrimental. They're, they tend to be beneficial and it, something that we can adapt to when it's driven by an excess of nutrient. And it tends to be maladaptive when it's rapid and it's driven by a toxin. Okay. And so um, we now have been consuming these toxins for 50, 60, 70 years, these polyunsaturated fatty acids. And one of the biggest discoveries, biggest breakthroughs in understanding autism was that we understand that it is 50, almost 50% 50 of it is genetic. And by genetic, I mean, there are new mutations in the children with autism that their parents did not have. Wow. That's really, really striking. So Yeah. And, and so it is, so about 50% of it is caused by these genetic mutations. And it's not just one mutation. It's like 10 new mutations that children with autism have that did not exist in their parents and that don't exist in their siblings. And, um, I make the case that it's coming primarily from these vegetable oils because, um, when they break down, they break down into known genotoxins. One of the examples is 4-HNE. It's a chemical name for hydroxynonanol. That is a known carcinogen and it causes DNA breaks, right? So it causes DNA mutations in a random way, in a maladaptive way that whatever this intelligence system is that's built into our DNA, it cannot handle that because it, it is a literally random toxin. It is like, it is like radiation. It, there's no like, uh, we can't, we can't handle all of it. So there's no like antidote to it. The only solution is to avoid it. And so this is why I say one of the most important things for pregnant women to do is while they're thinking about, you know, cutting down on their alcohol and staying away from people who are smoking, it's important to stay away from chips, fries, snack food, um, store-bought salad dressing, store-bought dips, and fast food, um, anything fried fast food, certainly, because that is going to be absolutely loaded with these horrible, um, toxic compounds from vegetable oils that have been heated and reheated. Yeah, that's such important advice. And I think it's kind of scary and amazing when you start looking at labels, how pretty much every processed food has, has those kind of fats in it. 
um, almost without exception. And so you talk a lot about going back to the traditional types of food and making as much from home as possible. And I think that is so key, but especially like you say, during pregnancy, because you are quite literally building a human being during that time. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just women. Um, men actually have been found to have an increasing number of mutations in their sperm as they get older. And so, um, I like to think about it as like, if you, uh, are a guy and you're walking into McDonald's and, um, you got, you know, you had your giant pail of fries or maybe it's KFC, you have your greasy chicken. By the time you walk out, you've consumed enough toxic compounds that you've actually aged your, um, your gonads significantly. And you're accelerating that process of creating new mutations in the DNA that is inside your sperm by that meal. So the fewer of those meals that you have, if you're a guy, the fewer of those mutations are going to accumulate. Like we, we, we talk a lot about how important it is for women to be healthy and what we need to do for fertility, but it's actually the, the, the men who are, um, producing these furious amounts of sperm. Like I, I think they produce a brand new batch every 28 days. Whereas we're, we're born with all the eggs that we're ever going to have, but they produce like, you know, billions um, <laughs> and that is a scenario in which if you are not having a good diet, there's going to be a lot more mistakes being made. And those mistakes, many of them are permanently going to affect the future of your family legacy. Yeah. How important is that to know? And also I have to ask, because I feel like this, there is more knowledge right now about um, genetics and people can get the test like 23andMe to find out about gene mutations and that kind of thing. So understanding that DNA is not stagnant and that it's adapting for very important reasons, can it adapt in the course of one's lifetime? Like, could a person actually see different tests on or different results on a test like that based on changes they make? Or do we know? Well, yes, because um, usually it's not going to be a good change, unfortunately. Um, so one type of cancer um, uh, called chronic myelogenous leukemia is a mutation that uh, develops during a person's lifetime. It's called the Philadelphia chromosome, and it causes white blood cells to divide out of control, and um, that that's what leads to that type of leukemia. So, absolutely. But but in terms of like, can you fix uh, like a previously developed or like in a mutation that you inherited? Um, that's not likely. Unfortunately, I'd love to say yes, but the fact is that it's not likely. But if you eat a really good diet, because I insist that our DNA is quite capable of adapting, um, you know, it's it got it has this intelligence which we don't really understand. It's able to better make decisions about okay, well, so maybe this gene has been taken out of commission, so we won't rely on it so much. We'll we'll try to make more of this other gene instead. And there's actually evidence that certain areas of the brain called hotspots are more prone to mutation than others. And these uh, were found in the course of trying to understand autism. They found that the mutations that we've, that we see in children with autism are in these hotspots. And these hotspots are in locations where the DNA winds around a histone, which is an organizing part of the DNA in the cell, very sharply. So it has a very sharp turn there. So it's more like chemically, it's under more stress anyway. So that is occurring more often in areas that are recently um, 
or that distinguish us from chimpanzees, right? That where we have different genes for making brain than uh, like a chimpanzee, because our brains are so much, you know, bigger than a chimpanzee's. Well, those are fairly recent changes. And they are uh, these hotspots that, that are now susceptible to all these mutations with autism. So the structure of DNA is, what I'm getting at is the structure of DNA is such that you're going to have mutations in certain specific places that were adaptive, right? When we, whenever uh, we went from, uh, you know, being, having smaller brains to having bigger brains, that was because our diets were changing in such a way that we had the extra material to make bigger brain. But now (laughs) our diets are changing in such a way that our brain material cannot be manufactured properly. And so again, the DNA is trying to adapt by changing our brain. It's just that this is a toxic um, kind of uh, exposure that we've never had to deal with before. And, and our, you know, there's just nothing in our, um, genetic history that can cope with this. So it's, it's not going to lead to positive changes. It's only going to lead to disease. And that's what we're seeing. So that's why we have to get away from these things. That makes so much sense. And so we hear more and more about things like epigenetics and, and I feel like that's kind of where this comes into play. And I have much less of an understanding than you, but it seems reasonable to me and feel free to correct me that when you're giving your body building blocks that it's essentially not used to. So your, your body has to use what it has. Um, and that old saying of you are what you're, what you eat is kind of eventually <laughs> true. Um, but when you've given your body cells that it doesn't recognize and doesn't know how to use, but say it has to. So in like a skin cell, is, does that increase the likelihood of certain types of cancers, for instance, skin cancer, because we know the sun is vastly important in a lot of ways. We need it for vitamin D and light signaling and circadian rhythm. But also now people think, you know, the sun equals skin cancer and sun exposure is bad. Um, how does that come into play there? And could it be that basically altering our cells and our body is causing this to some degree? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, as I mentioned, when we tested uh, what the adipose tissue is made out of, it's changed from being six to seven percent of that polyunsaturated fatty acid called linoleic acid to somewhere around 20 to 25 percent. Well, those polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, when they get hit by UV radiation, they can cause a lot more inflammation than when monounsaturated or saturated fatty acids that are in our skin get hit by radiation. So that inflammation um, is going to ultimately, well, they cause free radical cascades, which are the very things that, the very reason that radiation causes cancer has to do with free radicals and high energy molecules that damage DNA. So when your skin, you've got this, this kind of like ticking time bomb of linoleic acid sitting in your skin, it's sort of like a, I guess you could compare it to like a dry tinder in a dry forest, right? And then a lightning strike is going to cause a lot more fire if it's dry. And that linoleic acid is the dry tinder. Whereas if you had um, more antioxidants or more saturated fatty acid, it'd be like a more moist forest so that if you have a lightning strike from the UV, you know, this is the lightning is the UV analogy of the sun, you're going to have that be much more that energy, but much more rapidly quenched, right? It's not going to cause a widespread wildfire. So, um, that's why I think that we're seeing so much of a increase in the incidence of skin cancer. That makes sense. Does it go the reverse also? So I asked about whether we can change our DNA, which, 
you said it's probably not likely once we have a mutation, but can we kind of affect to some degree that how much a mutation is expressed? In other words, um, like someone may have a genetic predisposition to cancer, but can they, do they have some control over if that's expressed or if they actually get cancer? Absolutely. So um, yeah, we know that there's like one of the most common cancer, breast cancer genes, the BRCA1. Um, some of them have what's called an 80% penetrance. And what that means is that 80% of the people with that gene will get breast cancer, but 20% won't. So you can, if you have that gene, I believe that you can increase that percentage for you. you can stack the odds in your favor with a better diet. You can, you know, maybe you can increase the chance that you'll be in that 20% that won't ever get breast cancer just by improving your diet. Yeah, I think that's important for people to hear because I feel like sometimes you feel like you are kind of a, a product of your genes and a victim of that. But that's what I like so much about your message is that you give the hope for we actually do have maybe more control than we once thought we did. And the question I also have as a follow up to that is, how much control do you think we have going forward as far as the future of humanity? Because you said at the beginning that we're kind of on a teetering point there, like a very important point. And um, I know when you read the book at first, it can seem very overwhelming and that we're kind of all hope is lost. But um, based on what you know, how much do we have control over the future? And if we all made these changes, is it reasonable to think that we could kind of reverse some of these problems over the long term? Yes. Yeah, so it is a crisis. Um, the fact is we need to react uh, very quickly and it's an urgent need or it will be too late, but we are still here <laughs> and we are still, you know, able to reproduce a lot of us without surgical help. Um, and, you know, it's a whole other conversation. Why does that, why do we need so much surgery and cesareans all of a sudden? But um, as, as long as we're alive and able to reproduce and our, you know, mental functioning is still, you know, we've still got it cognitively, uh, then yeah, then there's hope. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's going to be easy, right? I can't say that. I know everybody always wants to hear, well, how can I break it down so that I don't have to spend any more money or any more time? And I can, you know, suddenly have all these healthy, nutritious foods in my life. And, there's ways, and I'm sure you've done this. Actually, you've I know you've done it because I've seen your recipes. You do a fantastic job of making it as simple as possible. But uh, I don't think you would <laughs> go so far as to say, oh, no, you, you can't. It's, it's all just as easy as like popping something in a microwave, right? <laughs> right. If you plan ahead, it can almost be, but you still have to do that planning ahead part, right? And you do have to make it a priority. But there's that is our only hope. So I think we need to move in that direction. And there's a lot, a lot of hope because the, you know, the, the fact is um, our genes are smart and they're smarter than me. So I can't say that, um, I can't say that, you know, it's hopeless. I think that they're, that if generation and then another generation, another generation get away from these vegetable oils and get back to the traditions that you can have people being every bit as strong and sturdy and robust as, we were a hundred years ago and as our founding fathers were. And I think they're the, the strongest men in history, the toughest men in history, our heroes all ate these foods. So yeah, that's a message for men. Well, and as the converse of that, so hopefully that will be the outcome and that within three generations, we will see drastic changes for the good. But if people don't, and if we continue on this path, what would you expect? Because like you just mentioned, we're seeing unprecedented levels of infertility and reproductive problems and 
like autism, as you mentioned before, how quickly could we actually see the really devastating effects of this? Yeah, that's, you know, unknown territory. But I'd have to say based on just based on the fact that, you know, when I moved from Hawaii back to the mainland, in Hawaii, almost nobody had food intolerances. It was very rare to see that somebody had like a thyroid problem or, um, you know, couldn't eat uh, soy or couldn't eat dairy or couldn't eat wheat. It's so extraordinarily common here um, that, you know, that one it's an immune system problem. Um, and, and that one change occurred basically while I was in Hawaii for 10 years. And we went from having, you know, almost nobody really having a problem with gluten to who knows, maybe 5% of the population, 10% of the population, who knows what it really is having a problem with just that one molecule because their immune systems aren't working right. And, um, the other thing that uh, is really, really scary, like I, I did mention autism, but it's not just autism. It's, it's IQ. Um, these gene changes, these mutations are, even if a child does not get diagnosed with autism, the more mutations they have, the lower their IQ. And that's what, you know, that's our brain. That's our, that is our humanity. Yeah. So, um, we shouldn't be messing with that. Yeah. And I, We'll definitely encourage people to read your book because it can go into so much more detail than we can in a podcast. But for those who are maybe overwhelmed or who are definitely willing to make changes after hearing you put it in such perspective over this last hour, let's talk about the practical side a little bit because you are the director of the Los Angeles Lakers nutrition program, which is incredible. And I, every time we have a bad season, um, I'm a Cincinnati Reds baseball fan. And every time we have a bad season with injuries, I'm like, they need Dr. Kate. Um, but let's talk about the practical side. So if you, if you're a mom and you're raising the next generation and you're willing to make changes, um, what does that look like? What would be the most practical steps that you would need to be taking on a daily basis to help yeah. So what we, it's just like what we do with the Lakers, you know, we, um, Gary Vitti, the trainer who, uh, just retired, um, who started our, who, you know, was the one that brought, um, us on board said that you just have to do baby steps. And, uh, you know, with the players, we couldn't get them from, you know, not knowing the difference between broccoli and celery to suddenly, uh, you know, demanding huge salads every day. We, we take it slow and, and that's, exactly the strategy for, uh, the household too. uh, the, the women who have written me who have said, you know, I, I started a program whatever years ago, and now my whole family's on board and we just can't believe the changes. They, when I asked them, well, how did you start to a woman or to a man, if it's a man who changed the diet, they started with one simple change it wasn't just like, okay, I did, I accomplished that. Now I'm ready for the next thing. It was that change created a benefit an immediately visible or palpable benefit. So for example, one woman said that she just stopped drinking soda in the afternoon. She ended up losing weight. And because she lost that weight, she just felt better about herself and she felt better about herself. I don't know, like as a woman or what, or what it was, but she just started cooking more. She was more inspired to be in the kitchen cooking for her family. And then when she did that, she got the vegetable oils out of her, you know, family's diet and her own diet. And then she was more like focused herself. She said that she was able to take on a lot of the challenge. She had a big family. I think she had like five or six children. And, uh, you know, she was able to really drill down into taking on the challenge of changing a child's diet too, because her brain was functioning better. So 
So just start with something like whatever you think your worst habit is. And uh, for me, I got away from vegetable oils. And because of that, I didn't crave sugar as much. And because of that, of course, I lost weight, but then I got better. My my knee um, started getting better when I got once I got the vegetable oils and sugar out of my life, and I could start walking again. And ultimately, it, it got completely better. It, it took a year, <laughs> but uh, it got completely better. And so, it has to be a change. Like if you try something and you don't feel a benefit, then maybe try something else. And usually, you know, it's going to be a time frame of like that you define, right? Like if you want to find something that's going to give you a benefit immediately, then start your day with something other than sweets for breakfast, because you will notice by lunchtime that you are less hungry and you've got a little bit more mental focus. Yeah, I love that. I actually have um, an ebook I just finished that's not out yet, but it's called Broth for Breakfast. And <laughs> it's right. around that because it's like, especially I have one child who um, for a while just didn't do well with eggs. And so if you can't cook eggs and you're not eating carbs, what do you do for breakfast? And so that was my solution was anything that could go into broth. And I, I love your perspective on that. And I have a question also that I get from readers a lot. And that is, when does um, all the benefits of modern technology come into play with this? I know we focus on traditional diets, but is there a place for, for instance, liver capsules for people who can't handle eating liver at first or um, omega-3 capsules for people who are just trying to work on liking fish more? What do you think about those kind of things? Yeah. So there are a few actually supplements and things that I recommend. For example, I even would recommend calcium and vitamin K if somebody can't have a lot of dairy. And, um, so, so absolutely. I mean, we can definitely use those crutches. They're not going to be as good as the original. So if you can do the original, if you enjoy it, it's better. If you, if you hate it, then I, I wouldn't say to force yourself. <laughs> Although I, you know, there's a, there's some tricks that you can do about making yourself trying to, um, you can sort of play with your appetite. First of all, getting sugar, sugar and vegetable oil out of your diet help improve your natural appetite. So you actually enjoy food and you can develop healthier cravings. But if you work up an appetite by exercise, don't reward yourself with sugar or candy because you're going to, you like that stuff anyway. The, the time to develop new habits is when you're hungry. So if you're starving, and you've got something in your fridge or somewhere that you know is good for you, but you really don't love it. Well, that's a good time to have it because you're going to enjoy it right there in that moment. If you have whatever it is, if it's sauerkraut or if it's uh, like some people I recommend uh, if they don't do dairy to do bone in sardines because there's lots of calcium in there. So it's a good time to have that. You're, you're going to enjoy it more. And so I like to make eating enjoyable. I like what Michael Pollan said something about luring people back into the kitchen rather than, you know, shaming them back. And I think that food can do that. Absolutely. And that's why as a mom, I always try to have my kids involved as much as possible in the cooking process because they're so much more likely to eat it. But also we really don't do snacks um, between meals much. And I, it's partially so that my kids are hungry at meals and they're willing to eat what's there. And occasionally if I get a child who's like, I don't like this, I'm like, that's fine. You don't have to eat, but hunger is a great teacher. And I, yes. they hear me say that a lot. Hunger is a great teacher. Um, <laughs> but I just, I, <laughs> I love your work though. I think that everything that we talked about today is so important for people to hear, but especially moms, because we're very day to day and raising the next generation and forming their habits that they're going to pass on to their children. And I'm going to make sure I link to everything we've talked about and especially your new book, which comes out in January. Can you talk about it a little bit and how people can find it? 
So yeah, January 3rd, it's going to be released. You can um, find it at bookstores everywhere at Amazon. You can, um, if you pre-order, wait, actually uh, that probably won't be possible. Actually, uh, there's this little special I'm going to be running. If you come to my website um, where you can also get access to our, another one of our books, food rules, if you um, order it through a link on our website. So that's at drkate.com, which is drcat.com. It's amazing. It's yeah. And I've read both. I should have explained that more clearly at the beginning that you were um, re-releasing it. And I've read both and they're both incredible, but I really do love the new one and how you go into depth on the story so much. And I feel like you make an incredibly compelling case for all these changes. And it gives me hope that people will make them and that we won't see these problems going forward like we are now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 I so hope that, you know, that, that you continue to inspire moms to do what you are doing because it is the most important thing. And I, I would say dads too, you know, some dads do it, I'm sure. Right. You got dads doing this, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. But somebody should, I mean, somebody needs to, whether it's a grandma or whatever, but this is the most important job. And if we don't get this job right, then pretty soon we're all going to realize that was our biggest mistake we've ever made. So let's end on a positive note. Yeah. <laughs> that, that wasn't it. <laughs> we do have a plan in the book. We kind of also break it down, right? So that, um, so, you know, it, probably it's completely compatible with everything that you recommend too. But, um, you know, it, it's it's a, a few pages of sort of different meal templates to give people ideas of how to start thinking about making healthy meals. Yeah, absolutely. And I will make sure to link to your website so that people can get the information on the bonus book and also um, to your social media so people can find you and follow you and stay up to date with you. But thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kate. I love your information. I've been a fan for a really long time, and it's been so wonderful to get to chat with you and to get to share you. Thanks, Katie. Thanks so much for what you do. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for listening and join us on the next episode of the Healthy Moms Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Healthy Moms Podcast. To get the bonus from the episode, as well as a content library of free health resources, join the community at wellnessmama.com forward slash podcast.